We're nearing the end of this book. And we want to focus today mainly on three verses. I'm going to look at seven through nine. And we're going to look at simply a a character study. This may be far less of a preaching sermon and really not a teaching sermon as much as it is a a character study of these two individuals, Tychicus and Onesimus. In 1911, in a simple newspaper advertisement from one of the well-known and probably greatest newspaper editors of the 20th century, he coined the phrase, use a picture, it's worth a thousand words. And that's what we have this morning. We have a picture a photograph accompanying uh, this letter that Paul has been sending to the church in Colossae. Probably you can concur with me that one of the grandest times of year for my family and yours as well is Christmas time. And we enjoy all the festivities that go with Christmas time and one of them is the receiving of snail mail. That doesn't happen very often anymore where you can get something from someone else other than maybe the occasional thank you note. You actually get something in the mail. It doesn't come by electronic communication. And so you hastily go on down to the mailbox there the first couple of weeks before Christmas and you find that letter or you find that card from a friend that you may have not seen for some time or many years and you open it up and there's this wonderful letter and you read about the different events of their life for the past year that you've maybe missed out on and then you get to the picture. And that's what we're really looking for, isn't it? Because the picture says a lot wow, that changed this, changed that, a little older, a little taller, a little wider, a little shorter, you know, whatever. The picture says a lot, and you're, you're looking for that picture. And a lot of times when we get to the end of a book of the Bible, or maybe a, going through a certain chapter of the Bible, and you get to one of those places in Scripture where there's a lot of names, and you're tempted just to kind of gloss right on over the top, because half the time you can't pronounce those na- names anyway, And that may be the one or only time or few times in Scripture that they're actually mentioned. You don't know anything about them, and you just kind of soar right over the top. And my desire this morning, that would be be to allow Scripture to show us that oftentimes when that happens, we're looking at the letter, and we just toss the picture right on out. We've missed the character study. We've missed the personal example of what is happening. But this also requires that we really get deeper in, and you have to do some extra study. All Scripture, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means every name, all of Scripture, even the ones that we only see once, has been given by God, and there's a purpose for them being there, and there's something that we can learn and then we will see this in this, this morning as we look into the Word and, and observe two of Paul's closest friends. Look with me there at Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Tychicus, the C-H there in his name is uh, pronounced with a, like a K. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. The NASB would read, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, 
faithful servant, fellow bond servant, as compared to faithful minister in the ESV, and the Lord will bring you information. What are some of the benefits of studying these individuals that often don't come with very much information? And I would just briefly list two before we get into the meat of our time of study here. First is we get a personal touch to an otherwise deep and theological letter or a deep and theological amount of information. I think at times we can kind of look at the Apostle Paul or really anyone that is one of the um, editors, as it were, God writing it through these people of um, Scripture, we can oftentimes get this position of, well, they're just not human. And you might think of Paul, well, Paul, you know, he just... He, he doesn't have any feelings. He doesn't realize how hard this is. Does he even realize how difficult it is uh, for marriage to work out? He must be a woman hater. I mean, you can go through and get just these kind of weird conjunctions of, what, of who the Apostle Paul is. And then you get into who are his friends and you kind of get this down-to-earth perspective and he, he kind of becomes mortal again. For instance, 2 Timothy 4. 11 through 13. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. This is the end of 2 Timothy. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Now notice this. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Man, he leaves his stuff in the pews just like we do. He's normal too. He must have quite the lost and found at all these different churches of all his different stuff that he's just bailed out on and has run to the next place. He's, he's human. He forgets things. We get a personal touch. And then the second one, I think, is we would get to see the proof in the pudding. You know, there's a, it's easy to, to listen to a great pastor or maybe a great-sounding pastor, great-sounding theologian on the Internet, um, on some sort of communica- media-type communication on the TV. And then you, you meet a friend, someone that's really, you know, away from the glitz and glamour and knows them. And they can give you real, the honest, who really is this person? What are they really all about? What are their mannerisms? What do they struggle with? What do they not struggle with? You can get a closer picture. You can really see whether or not what they're saying is matching up with with how they're living. Now, who is Tychicus? Let's look at who this man is. He's mentioned only five times in the New Testament. And the first would be in Acts 20, and you're welcome to go there. You don't have to. We'll just look at this briefly. Let me read from Acts 20, verse 1 through 4. This is the first time he's mentioned in Scripture, and he's mentioned four other times after this. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed uh, departed from them to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and abode there three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater, Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius, of Derby, and Timmy, Timmy, Timothy, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trophimus. You know how hard it is to pronounce those things? Who are these people? Well, we see Tychicus for the first time. Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. He takes three of them in his lifetime and he's at the end of the third and here Tychicus comes on board and we don't know anything about him where he was born we don't know how old he is we don't know when he became a follower of Christ I think we could safely assume that through the work and ministry of Paul is how Tychicus is introduced or the Lord brings him to himself and 
from that, he obviously becomes a very close companion and disciple of Paul. And we know this because the last letter that Paul writes is 2 Timothy. And Tychicus is mentioned in 2 Timothy. And so if you look at the historical record from where we first see him in Acts 20 at the end of the third missionary journey, all the way to the end of Paul's life, that could be as much as 10 years that Tychicus walked with Paul through his ups and his downs, his good times, his bad times, his journeys, um, his imprisonments. Tychicus was there through those. He was a friend through the thick and thin. Now we also see him mentioned at the end of Ephesians. Ephesians 6.21 So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. He's mentioned in Colossians as we're studying here today. And then as I mentioned, he's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.12 Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. And then Titus, he's also mentioned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Five times he's mentioned in Scripture over a ten-year period of time. And the most information we're given about him is here in this passage in Colossians. He's obviously a man of high character. He is a man who is a servant, Colossians 4. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister. That could be translated faithful servant. He was an assistant to Paul. He was a disciple of Paul's and he sought to minister to Paul. And he helped him in whatever way that he could as he was also a fellow servant or a fellow bond servant in the Lord. He was a fellow believer. I think it's interesting to note that Tychicus is a man of, of really no special qualities. He doesn't have the pastoral abilities of, say, Timothy or Titus. He doesn't have the preaching abilities of, say, Peter or Paul, but he's faithful. And that, in his faithful service, makes him extraordinary, considering he has nothing out of the ordinary in his natural abilities and talents. But he lives, it out, he lives out his life in a faithful way. We know, according to 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul told Timothy that he's to entrust, Timothy is to entrust these truths to faithful men. And Tychicus was one of those faithful men. Now, he's mentioned in, Ephesus, in Ephesians and Colossians. And so we know that Paul trusted him enough that he, after he wrote the letter to Colossians and he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he gave them both to Tychicus and sent him. And this was not an easy journey to take. It required uh, a lot of travel over land and sea, uh, walking, riding, whatever it took, through dangerous areas, over much uh, different terrain to get to these two places, and he did. He delivered both the Ephesian letter, letter to the Ephesians, and the letter to the Colossia, letter to Colossa. He had one other letter with him. He actually carried three. He had the letter of Philemon. You see that there at the end of uh, this part in Colossians 4, and with him, Onesimus. So he had Onesimus with him. And Onesimus went with Tychicus to, apparently, the church in Ephesus and uh, delivered this church, letter to the church at Colossa. And he also took the letter back to his master with Tychicus to Philemon. So Tychicus was a man that was faithful and could be trusted and was a servant to Paul. 
Now notice he also has a kindred heart. He's a kindred spirit with Paul. If you, if you have a close friend, they understand um, the passions of your heart and they know how to communicate those. For instance, have you ever gone to a, uh, married couples in here would understand this, you know, you go to a, maybe an outing and you don't have your better half with you and they say, you know, how is your wife or how is your husband doing? Maybe they haven't seen them for a while. And you know how to communicate that. Well, they're doing well. Well, you know how to communicate what that wellness really is and, and kind of the heart of how they're doing. And Tychicus obviously had to have a close relationship with Paul because here in uh, Colossians 4, he says, he is a beloved brother, uh, faithful minister, will tell you all about my activities. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. See, the people in Colossa or in Ephesus are gonna read these letters and go, okay, now tell us how he's really doing. That sounds good, but what's, how's he really doing? He's obviously in jail. How's things going for him? And you don't want to entrust that to just anybody. And Paul didn't. He trusted it to a man who had shown himself to be faithful over about a 10-year period of time. He told them how they were doing. He encouraged them. He knew what parts to leave out. Maybe Paul had a cough. He could say, you know, pray for his health. He's struggling a lot. But he didn't go into, man, the guy's coughing blood every few minutes. You know, he, he knew how to share just the right amount of information, but and tell the truth, obviously, but how to give a way that would encourage the body of Christ without discouraging them or taking their focus away from where it needed to be. Tychicus, a man who served well, and we have much we could learn from him. Now, who is this man, Onesimus? Well, we have a little more on Onesimus because Onesimus uh, is mentioned in the book of Philemon. And with him, with Tychicus, Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Turn with me over to the book of Philemon. We're going to go through First and Second Timothy. We're going to go through Titus. Right before Hebrews, you have the little book, 25 verses of Philemon. Let's look here to get a little bit of perspective of who this man Onesimus is. Paul is writing to uh, this man Philemon. He's a believer. He has a church in his house. We see that in verse 2. He would probably be a wealthy man. He had different servants and he had obviously a large enough house to be able to house a church in or have other people come. The church was growing during this time. And Onesimus was a servant of Philemon. Look with me at verse 8 of Philemon. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Back then, if you were a servant or a slave of someone and you decided you didn't like that at that job or the atmosphere you were in and you wanted to take on some other work and you ran the punishment was you had to give up your life. You had to be killed. Well, Onesimus decided he did not like working at Philemon's house. At that time, he probably was not a believer, isn't a believer according to the record here. And so he takes off. 
Because I can imagine a man who uh, doesn't love the Lord and here he is in Philemon's house and Philemon has got all these uh, different activities going on within his home that would correspond to worshiping the Lord and this would not be his heart. So he takes off on a run for Rome probably with the, desire to, with the desire to live it up, sort of like the prodigal son. I'm going to go and really experience life as it ought to be lived compared to what these people are doing, which just seems uh, off the wall. And who does he run into? The Apostle Paul. I, thought, yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, how you, you, there's other records in Scripture. Jonah would be one. You cannot run from God. You can't run from that which is that person, the Spirit, God, who He is, who's omnipresent. He knows all things and He's all places. And you can go, but you can't hide. And He He went from the fire, from the frying pan right into the fire, didn't He? You went from Philemon's house right to Paul. Talk about getting it from both sides. And, and you probably would know this in your own life. We've, you've probably heard of someone who go, man, I just can't stand this house. I can't stand being in this home. I don't want to be around these people anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. Sometimes young men who can't stand discipline and obedience and respect, where do they go? The military. And they get it even worse. And then other young people, they decide they don't want to be at home anymore and they go. And the Lord always, a lot of times, the Lord has someone where they go that calls them, that challenges them, that encourages them, that strengthens them, that if necessary brings them to repentance. You cannot run from the Lord. He knows all things that are going on. Well, Onesimus uh, doesn't, tries his best, but he runs straight into Paul. Paul uh, brings him to Christ through the ministry of the word there. And not only does he come to Christ, he becomes, a, as Paul mentions here in Colossians 4, a faithful and beloved brother. He's more than just a servant now. He's now a brother in Christ, and he's a disciple of Paul. And Paul, understanding his, uh, Onesimus' necessity to go back and make uh, right, uh, wrongs right, sends him back to Philemon. And uh, he goes back and is obviously restored uh, to Philemon. And it, interestingly, Enough. If you uh, look at some of the historical record, the one of the early church fathers, Ignatius, who has um, some writings, mentions Onesimus. Now, we would know per se if this is the exact same Onesimus. It may be, but I think it's interestingly enough. I think it's interesting enough to note of what happens here. An, uh, Ignatius, in his in his letter to the Ephesians, says this. For when you heard that I was come from Syria in bonds for the name and hope common to, all, to us all, and I was hoping by your prayer to attain my purpose of fighting with wild beasts at Rome, that through my attaining I may be enabled to be a disciple, you were anxious to visit me. I received therefore your numerous body, I received your, um, I received your church, is what he's saying, in the name of God in the person of Onesimus. It may very well be that not only was Onesimus sent back to Philemon, he actually became Philemon's pastor at the church of Colossia there. We don't know that for sure. We will find that out one day in heaven. But needless to say, he was converted, he was brought to the Lord, and he did have an impact for the cause of Christ, if for nothing else, there in the house of Philemon. Now, I want to go from here and look at four different things I think that can, for us as a church can be learned from this passage. 
And these would be in way of application if you desire them to be so, or they could just be some things to look at. The first thing I want to look at is that the value of discipleship. The value of discipleship. In Scripture, we see um, many people with disciples. Paul had disciples, as can be seen by these men and others that are listed here in Colossians 4. John the Baptist had disciples. We know that through Matthew 11.20. Christ had his disciples. Moses discipled Joshua. Eli had Samuel. Elijah had Elisha. Uh, Christ, obviously, Matthew 28.19, go therefore and make disciples. He instructs us to do so. It is a common, should be a common place within the body of Christ that there is the making of disciples. And we should be about the business of making disciples as well as about the business of being discipled. And that brings about the question, naturally, as who is discipling you? Or who is discipling your children? Peers, media, the church, your work, a Bible study, music, talk radio. There's, there's many influences that can disciple us. Who's the biggest influence on your life? As parents, we should be the largest influence on our children's lives. We should daily be instructing them in the Word of God and showing them how the Word of God comes to bear upon daily life. If we're not doing that, we're not as well as we should be and uh, discipling our children. We may be talking to them every once in a while, but if we're not daily opening the Word of God with them, we're not using the sword to its fullest capacity in our children's lives, and we're going to suffer, da- we're going to suffer for it. We must be about the business of making disciples. If we are about the business of discipleship with our children, then by God's grace, we will have a biblical perspective that allows for growth, mistakes, and maturity as the years go by because we're taking the word of God to bear and we're showing them how it applies on a daily life. So when your children make mistakes, you open the word of God and you show them how the word of God gives them hope, draws them to repentance, provides grace, draws them forward. Shows them how they can change. If you're discipling them, uh, the nature of discipleship is that you're training someone up to take your place. So you're going to allow for maturity through your children. You're going to allow them to grow and, and have more responsibility and develop from the age, a young age, such as three, four, or five, two, three, four, and five, up till they're 20. Well, if you're discipling them from the beginning, by the time they, by the time they hit, different stages of life they're going to naturally have more maturity naturally have more freedom from you because you've been training them from day one and so that's just the natural process that it goes if you're not discipling them you may be finding yourself looking now at your children at the older years and wondering why it is that you're having to apply so much pressure maybe you did not disciple them well today is the day you can begin that we want to train up we want to go, the Bible says, to go in all the world, making disciples. The home is the natural place to do this. And, and then from the home, you go to the church. You take them to uh, ministry opportunities. You bring people to your home. You seek to disciple them. You seek to walk the Christian life with them and they with you. 
Allow them to see you share the gospel. How can you expect your children to have a heart to share the gospel if they've never seen you share the gospel? If they've never seen you uh, weep over your sin, how can you expect them to ever weep over their sin? You're simply living life out through scripture before them and training them how to do the same with the intention that they will, by God's grace, use it and grow. Teach a child in the way he should go when he's old enough to depart from it. We pray that that would happen. We trust that if we use the truth of scripture, it will not return void. There may be gaps, as there are gaps in our life where there's strengths and there's weaknesses, there's times of intense desire for the Lord and then there's times when it wanes. Well, that's going to happen. So if your child is in that waning period, doesn't look good right now, we're trusting that if you've used the truth of scripture in their life, they will, uh, it will not return void. So the value of discipleship. I think we could see here that Paul is certainly uh, training up these men and um, has them with him. Uh, they're in prison, uh, on the journeys. They're around him as he lives out life. Number two, the blessing of godly friends. The blessing of godly friends. Proverbs seventeen seventeen. I'll read some scriptures here. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Now that doesn't mean your brother next to you is born to give you adversity. That means that you're a close friend will be born out of adversity walking with him through, through different times of life. Oftentimes your, your closest friends uh, are made clear as you go through adversity in life. That's what it's saying here. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 10. Notice the, um, the intensity scripture puts upon friends. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or your wife you embrace, or your friend... Listen to, listen to how much pressure they put upon, uh, the scripture places upon us to keep our friends accountable. Or your friend who is as your own soul, so a kindred spirit here, entices you secretly saying, hey, let's, let's go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. So your friend comes to you, hey, hey, let's kind of sneak out and do something. Let's go. Let's go experience some of what the world has to offer. Well, the Bible says no, you don't have to listen to him. You don't have to pity him. You don't have to have, you, you close your ears to him. And then it takes it a step further. But you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. Now, easy. It's the Old Testament. Different things apply here. My point being, I want you to clearly see that friends are made, are very important in scripture. And the type of friends that you have are very important according to scripture. To the point that if you had a bad friend in the Old Testament, he's not supposed to be a bad friend anymore. We have some examples in scripture of good and bad friends. Judah, he has a friend, Hira the Adulamite, Genesis 38. Study that, bad friend bad friend. David has Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18. David also has Hushai in 2 Samuel 15. Job has his three friends. Well, those friends were gone, went through the fire with Job and it was obvious there with the type of friends that they were. 
Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. We have a friendship with Christ. Christ is a friend of sinners. Psalm, Christ had friends. Psalm 41, 9, Judas, or it's talking about Judas, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Christ mentions having friends. John, uh, we know according to the, the Gospel of John, was a close friend of Christ. Proverbs 18.24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's made clear in Scripture, you know, here, here in our culture today, you know, I've got 984 friends on Facebook. No, you don't. You, have acquaint, you may have many acquaintances. Scripture shows that you're actually supposed to have a close-knit circle of friends, and you may have many others that are acquaintances, and you may actually call them friend, but the definition of friendship as it is defined in scripture, is one that is a very close, intimate relationship. One that is not just defined by casual, uh, a casual knowing of another individual. And actually, uh, a person who has many uh, of those may actually come to ruin, according to Proverbs 18.24. Proverbs 22.24, Make no friendship with a man given to anger. We're shown in scripture the type of friends we should have, nor go with a wrathful man. If you have a friend that's angry, according to scripture, you're not supposed to be friends with him. If you're an angry person, you need to change so that you might gain some friends. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul tells us, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. A friend is a very important relationship. And not having a friend can be a very lonely time in life. And I think we've all had those. I know I've had a few times in my life when my family moved. I remember one time when I was 16, we moved from uh, Bloomington, Indiana to Dallas, Texas, Flower Mound, Texas. And I remember thinking, God, you've got, I, I prayed, God, you've got to give me a friend. There's no one I know around here. And the Lord raised up, one, we were there for a couple of years, and the Lord raised up one man, Corey Beavers, that became a very close friend of mine and encouraged me. It's very difficult when you don't have a friend. And you notice in, in today's culture, uh, in the social media, if you have a friend that unfriends you, how many people get bent out of shape from that? Uh, we, we just the term friend uh, has a connotation of a, of a closeness, of trust, of a, uh, that they like you. There's a, all these different connotations to go with the word friend. It, it has a, uh, there's a lot of gravity to this word. Uh, the playground, um, we have a playground. Growing up in church, we had a playground, and you know, remember the whole thing, I don't want to be your friend anymore. And you always go, he doesn't want to be my friend anymore. Well, there's a lot of gravity to this term. Now, I, I want to note something, and I asked my wife if I should note this, and then I asked Christopher, a close friend of mine, whether I should note this, and so I'm going to. They both encouraged me to do it. I, I just want to note something. I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but young people, I, if I could bend your ears for a half a second here, I would, note, I would want you to note this. I would want you to note that here in Colossians, notice that Paul mentions his friends, and when he does, they're all men. They're all male. And as I've studied scripture on friendship, I've noted that the normative, I'm using that word, normative um, of close friends is those that are of the same gender, men with men, women with men, women. And I would not be to say that Scripture doesn't mention friends of the opposite gender. Paul does so. Uh, but it never mentions that I can find a close relationship, we might term it as best friend, such as a, a, Jonathan, a David and Jonathan type friendship, um, that close level of discipleship with 
a man and, and a woman that are not married. And I think it'd be wise for us young people to note that, to be careful there. I'm not suggesting that you should not have a friend that is of the opposite gender, a man or a woman or a young man or a young lady. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm simply stating, very, I think, what's very clearly shown in Scripture, that the Bible shows that the normative is your closest friends, the inner circle, the two, three, four, five, ten that are really close with you uh, should be of the same gender. And I think that's wise. I think it's just a wise habit to make for us young people. When you get married, uh, go ask any married couple in here and they're all going to tell you that's a wise thing to do. It doesn't translate well into marriage. Well, you might say, I, I don't have any friends. I don't have any friends. And I, I see what you're saying, that friendship is a, is, a, is a blessing, but I don't have any. And I would encourage you to note that some of the best friends in Scripture have a discipleship relationship. David and Jonathan. Paul and these men. The, close, the closest friends I've had through the years and uh, closest friend I had for many years up until I was married, I was a young man named Jesse, and we bonded in Christ. We, we had times of, of just crying and pouring out our hearts to the Lord, seeking to become men of God and seeing our weaknesses. And, and you get really close there. I've developed deep relationships with godly older men who I've been uh, blessed enough to disciple me. I, I, I remember living in Mark Przlovsky's house and I did, Caught my eyes, I'm looking back there and seeing him. I have, a, I have a godly relationship with that man because he, he sought to disciple me. Tom Proch would be the same way. Tim Boltman would be the same way. Other men in here. You develop close relationships through the context of discipleship. So if you don't have a close friend, go seek to find someone that you can walk out the Christian life with and you can encourage with and you can meet together on a regular basis and grow in the understanding of Christ and walking that out. And you will develop a very close friend and encourage them to do so. And next thing you know, exponentially, you will, you will have friends. Some of the closest uh, young men friends that I have have grown out of the time where they've encouraged me or I've been able to have the blessing to encourage them and you have close godly friendships. So I would note that we have um, that normative in Scripture as well. And then even if you're in a time where you don't have many friends, I would encourage you by the, the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our griefs with him we share. We have Christ as our closest friend. Number three, uh, we've looked at uh, the value of discipleship, the blessing of godly friends. Number three, the grace of God on those with a past. Now, Paul had a past. Um, it was not a good past. Um, Onesimus has a past. It was a very uh, rough past. Every one of us have some sort of past and you may be at a time of your life where the past is more uh, ugly than you would desire it to be. Maybe you have fallen into a sin. Uh, maybe there is, uh, maybe you are in a period of life where you have repented from that, uh, maybe a habitual sin in your life. Uh, maybe you are a new believer and you're looking and saying, how in the world can God use such a wretched man as I or a wretched woman as I? I have such an ugly past, there's no way he could ever use me. And it is very clear here in Scripture that God delights to place his grace in such a way upon those with a past. God delights to use us. And you, there are, I know, individuals in this room who have a past and they've been able to see God's blessing and grace upon their life 
and using that past for his glory. And if you're in a time where you're wondering if that can happen, let's go to scripture. I encourage you to look at scripture, look at Onesimus, uh, look at Tychicus, um, look at Paul, look at Peter, um, look at David, look at men that have a past, look at women that have a past. God delights to place his grace on those with a past. Lastly, lastly, there is strength in numbers. Value of discipleship, the blessing of godly friends, the grace of God on those with a past, and there is strength in numbers. Paul, um, with the exception of probably one part in his third missionary journey, is never alone. He always has people around him. That doesn't mean that there's not times in the day when he's alone, but he has a, he has a close relationship um, where people are around him, normal, for the normative part of the day. Um, he's, in a, he's, he's in a community. He's in a, he's in a body of Christ. He has men that are around him that are holding him accountable. And this is clear that there are strength in numbers. He was constantly discipling or encouraging or training. Um, there are, there's other men that will come up and tend through the end of this chapter that encourage him. So he has these people around him. He, he realizes, uh, and he's not afraid to lean on men that are faithful. And we must be the same way. He realized that he could not do it all himself and that he needed help. He was willing to train up men to take his place and maybe even be better than he was. We often call the culture we're in a lone wolf culture. I think biblically we would better term it as a lone sheep culture in a, in a, a land that is saturated with wolves. And we desire to, I've got this, I can handle this, I can do this by myself. And no, you can't, and that's not how God has designed it. And there is a blessing uh, there is a strength that comes with being in a close-knit community where you can be encouraged and strengthened um, as you're encouraging and strengthened. That's the nature of the body of Christ. And Paul is, um, is, is, is living that out. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Uh, so there's people that Tychicus knows well what's going on in his daily life. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very, very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And Onesimus was sent for the same thing. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So he had people that knew what was going on in his daily life. And, and we've got to be willing to do that. You do it wisely. Uh, that would be going back to the value of having close friends. There are close friends that you may share more with as was mentioned there in First Light with John Piper, when he had marriage trouble, there were people that knew very closely his situation and there were others that knew more generally about his situation. I'm not advising that you air all your dirty laundry to whoever wants to drive by your house. I am advising that you have close personal friends that you're able to uh, be strengthened with as you walk through a tough time. And as our church is here in this 11th year, we cannot be blind to the fact that we are not going to go through tough times or there are not families that at this very moment going through very tough times and to think that the best way during that time to is to isolate is to um, miss out on much grace that is there in scripture that comes from people coming around you the family of God encouraging you strengthening you during your time of need so we've looked at this morning these two men 
a Tychicus and Onesimus, and I would hope and pray that we'd be able to take some things from their life and apply them to our own, uh, to be faithful. Uh, I think that's really probably the prevailing factor of both of these men. They were faithful where God planted them. Uh, they were faithful to respond uh, to the truth of Scripture and to change even if that meant a lot of humility. They were willing to, uh, to seek the Lord above all else. Uh, they sought to find themselves in close proximity with other godly individuals and make those the people that were the most, had the most influence upon our life. And I think we could uh, do the same. At the same time, uh, notice that uh, these men um, were also engaging the world for Christ. You know, they, they were willing to go on these, on these trips for Paul. Uh, they were not afraid to take what they were learning and go make disciples themselves. And that would be a strong application point for us as a church we've got a lot been given much and not to be afraid to make go out into the world as been commanded by christ and make disciples for the glory of god to all nations let's pray lord we have been given a gift this morning to be able to see who these men are in scripture thank you for not leaving us um, short about the character of these men. Um, you're not leaving us. You, you've left us a, a, a beautiful picture here at the end of this book of really all of this book being lived out in these men's lives, Tychicus and Onesimus. And uh, I thank you, Lord, that you've used these men even today, we have this book we're reading in Colossians. We have the book of Ephesians. We have the book of Philemon because of the faithfulness of Tychicus. We thank you for him. And we would pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful. That if you so choose to allow your son to tarry in his return, that in 10, 15, 20, 50, 100, 1,000, whatever time is remaining on this earth, years down the road, our faithfulness would be a strengthening aspect to the church of Christ. Help us, Lord, to, to live out faithful lives. Help us to, to take the truths of Scripture, such as friendship, such as discipleship, understanding your use of our past, such as some of us when we were in our sin, that you desire to use these things the body of Christ, help us to see these truths and to apply them and bring repentance to us, Lord, when we're not applying them biblically. When maybe we, out of pride, want to shun someone knowing intimately who we are and what we struggle with, the sin in our lives. Or maybe it's not wanting to make the time of day to share the gospel or make time for a, a brother or sister in Christ that needs a word of encouragement, discipling them, encouraging them. Or bring repentance in those areas where our pride is controlling rather than the word of truth. I thank you for the encouragement this word has been to me, the conviction it has been to me. Help me to be more faithful in the tasks that you provided for me to do. I thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. 
who these men are. I thank you, Father, that Calvary does cover it all, our past with its sin and stain, that the cross is central here, the glory of Christ is central here, and the character of these men's lives, and may it be so in ours. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.